Um, the first panel is the history panel, and uh, we have uh, Kum Kum uh, Chatterjee right here uh, to my left, uh, Tijana uh, Kristic, um, and uh, Bill Penzak, and Matthew Restel. And Matthew will be uh, moderating this 30-minute uh, panel discussion. Uh, it's, I don't know how well the microphone picks up. Is that good? Um, it's quite an honor to be uh, kicking off not only the roundtable this afternoon, but in a way, we're beginning the entire Moments of Change year. Um, it's an honor because, as Dean Welch just pointed out, this is an extraordinary organizational achievement on the part of Ma and those who've been working with her. Um, and I think it's going to be an extraordinary pedagogical and intellectual achievement as well by the time we're done, although um, don't expect that to kick in in the next 15 minutes. <laughs> um, we, as you all have noticed looking at what's going on this afternoon, we're the, the history gang. I was going to say we're the history boys, but that was not. <laughs> but you get the reference. We're the history gang, so we're supposed to present to you in 15 minutes um, Everything that historians might want to say about the, the, the first couple of decades of the 17th century. And I suppose this might be true of everybody in the room, but certainly for historians, um, we wallow academically, professionally in verbiage, right? We read buckets of words, we produce buckets of words, and most of all, we love to hear the sound of our own voices <laughs> spewing buckets of words, as you can tell already. Um, <laughs> I only wish I had the whole 15 minutes to myself, right? That's the, that's the sad part. So to, to try and cram all this in, in 15 minutes to us, it seemed to us that we needed to come up with some kind of bumper sticker um, way of characterizing it. And the word that we came up with uh, is globalization. Um, we think that's quite clever, but Probably those of you who are not historians think it's a little bit obvious. Globalization. Um, I was sort of hoping that, that those who've not had a lot of experience working in or reading in the 17th century would imagine that a later time period would be better characterized by globalization. Um, so what we're here to do to convince you in the next 12 minutes is that the period from 1600-1625 actually is a key moment in the process of early modern and modern globalization. In, in the year 1600, globalization would have looked pretty much like an Iberian imperial enterprise and not much more. By 1625, it looks very different, um, not only of the French and the Dutch and the, uh, and the English involved, but in a way it looks like a process that involves all of Western Europe attempting to engage in various ways, not only violent ways, but often violent ways, attempting to engage the rest of the world and to make sense of, of that engagement. And this image up here is one that if we have an opportunity towards the end of our 15 minutes, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, like our bumper sticker, single word, globalization. This is a sort of single image that we wanted to, sh to throw up there uh, to represent uh, these European attempts to understand what the rest of the world is like. And before I turn over the microphone to my colleagues, I'll just explain to you if you don't already realize the person on the left is Amerigo Vespucci and the woman in the hammock is America. So this, this, this illustration is called Vespucci in America. Of course, Vespucci's first name, Amerigo, gives rise to the name America and from then on 
historians can carry this for pages and pages, and that's even before literary people and art historians and so on weighed in on this. This was a very well-known image in the period that we're looking at. It was first drawn in the 16th century, but then it was changed over and over, and the characters were changed, and, and so on. So for, for many um, of the, the reading elite in Europe, this would have been, for them, something very familiar. If we could have somebody from 1610 in the room, they wouldn't understand a word I was saying, but they would be able to recognize that image. Um, okay, I'm going to be quiet for a few minutes and let my colleague Tiana Kerstich talk about um, the Ottoman side of this. Right. Well, um, from the Ottoman perspective, this probably would be a little bit of a distortion. In fact, even though the traditional accounts about the Ottoman Empire classify um, the Ottoman Empire together with the Habsburg Safavid uh, of Iran and, and Mughal uh, Empire of India uh, in the batch of the failed empires uh, that supposedly failed to understand the new economic models that are being developed um, in the early 17th century and later failed to modernize. When we look at the primary sources from the first decades of the 17th century, uh, there's very little to substantiate um, this view. Uh, in fact, both Ottoman and uh, European primary sources from the early 17th century uh, suggest that there was very little um, that would uh, make the Ottoman Empire appeal, appear uh, inferior towards uh, its Western European uh, competitors. Uh, additionally, um, there is also very little to substantiate the dominant paradigm in the study of the Mediterranean in the late 16th and early 17th century, which is Fernand Brodel's paradigm, which maintains that um, in the late 16th century, the Mediterranean experienced the decline and that we see a meteor meteoric rise of the so-called northern uh, invaders, the French, the English, and the Dutch. Uh, again, very little to substantiate uh, this as well. In fact, uh, I could say that from the perspective of the 17th, uh, 17th century Ottoman Empire at this early stage, there was very little to indicate who will be the uh, winners and losers in the race for modernity, uh, if we want to take that view of the question. Come, come. Okay, thank you. Uh, well, I have a few minutes to try and sum up what the 17th century may have looked like for a complex and large subcontinent, the Indian subcontinent. But actually, uh, I'm going to take a cue from what Tiana just said. And if from the 17th century, one had to look at the history of the Indian subcontinent, one thing that is really striking is that it's still a dominant paradigm for studying this part of the world, which suggests that in the 17th century, a dynamic and a modern Europe expanded and came into contact with somewhat stagnant and tradition-bound, unchanging societies and polities in other parts of the world. And the Mughal Empire certainly fell into that category. But when we look at the picture, again, from the perspective of the South Asian subcontinent, things begin to look very different. This is a very dynamic period in which, among other things, the subcontinent gets very firmly enmeshed and connected to an evolving and unfolding early modern globalization through channels of trade and other kinds of contacts. Secondly, it's also very much a part of a very large trans-regional cultural, economic formation, which includes much of the Islamic world. And I think these are some of the two most dominant paradigms that shape the history of the 17th century. And its manifestations are seen in a range of things, starting from political organization, the visual arts, 
music, literature, architecture, and a variety of other things. But I'll stop now and let my colleagues talk about other parts of the world. Well, it's fitting that we began with the Ottoman Empire in India because the model that's going to be used for the colonization of North America, the joint stock company, was first used in the Middle East with the Levant Company that was founded in 1579 by the British and the East India Company founded in 1603. The years 1600 to 1625 marked the first permanent British and French settlements on the North American continent, Jamestown in 1607 and Quebec in 1608. However, this will maybe a blow to our nationalist pretensions here in the United States, but North America was by far the least important area of Br English or British activity anywhere in the world in this period. There were only three mainland colonies established in this period, Virginia in 1607, Plymouth Plantation in 1620, and Marymount, which was soon to be taken over by the Puritans. And they weren't doing very well. The Pilgrims lost half their 102 settlers the first winter. 5,000 people came to Virginia between 1607 and 1625. A thousand of them were alive in 1625. The two most important British colonies were Barbados, which produced sugar, and Newfoundland, which produced fish. Yet, despite these limitations, the two major styles of British colonization that were to set up a worldwide empire emerged at this time. Plymouth was a settler colony based on subsistence farming and fishing. Um, it was also based on people seeking a new religious vision. Virginia was a colony based upon the growth of a staple crop, tobacco, which was designed to make money. And the two interacted. Um, very soon, the um, surplus that was being grown and fished in Plymouth and in Massachusetts would be sold to the um, slave colonies in the West Indies in order to enable them to feed themselves, thus marking the beginnings of a global British empire in which the interaction of slave labor and free labor were absolutely essentially working with each other. So let me ask the three of you, I think we have another five minutes maybe. Um, what about this idea that uh, we sort of talked about when we were preparing for this, that um, the world looked very different 25 years after the year 1600, particularly in terms of this process of globalization, that there was something that was happening in 1625 that was not as obvious or as predictable as it had been 25 years earlier. And is that true for the areas that you've all been, been talking about? Come, come, yeah. Uh, I would say yes, except when we are looking at a picture in such broad terms, it needs a bit of fine tuning for the South Asian subcontinent. Maybe not exactly 1600 to 25, but maybe a little, little uh, wider span of time. But yes, I would say that, as I said before, in terms of uh, political culture, and in terms of material culture, and in ma many other ways, these connections with European capital and with a wider Islamic world, including the Ottomans, was a very extremely fruitful one. And this is a period in which, uh, you know, the term colonial actually doesn't apply at all. And recent scholarship suggests that instead of thinking of early modernity as something which had origins exclusively in Europe, one should probably think of it in terms of a phenomenon which is much wider 
and had roots perhaps also in parts of the of Asia and the Middle East. Well, a lot of the same applies to the Ottoman Empire. Um, the empire was included very much, not only in the economic, but also in the religious and political developments throughout Europe in this time. In fact, the, um, together with the uh, merchants to the Ottoman Empire came the missionaries, came the uh, priests um, from different um, Christian denominations in Europe um, started spreading uh, Catholicism, Protestantism among the Christian subjects in the Ottoman Empire. And per perhaps the most important change in the first 25 years uh, in the Ottoman Empire would be uh, as a consequence of these newcomers um, and their influence on the local Christian and Jewish populations, a uh, change in the balance between the Muslim and Christian communities <coughs> in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, these merchants and, and uh, missionaries actually empowered the indigenous Christian communities who slowly take over, um, complete, uh, and, and become dominant in uh, commerce in the Ottoman Empire, even though they were, that was the case before, but right now, for example, the Greeks take over um, um, trade uh, and culture uh, and, and a lot of the new cultural activities that they never had before. So I guess the most important impact of the globalization would be for the Ottoman Empire, the uh, empowerment of um, the actual non-Muslims in the empire. I would say that actually Kumkum and Tiana's areas of interest, the Middle East and India, the British trade gets much more um, involved and becomes much more important there. I don't think the British are really set in, Nor in North America until after the Restoration in 1660. Um, the Dutch are still there. You have the Swedish trying to begin a colony in 1638. But these are very small colonies that are just starting. They almost go home from Virginia. Um, the Pilgrims are a very small group. It's not till Massachusetts Bay is founded in 1629 that you get a large population coming to New England. And it's only after the defeat of the Dutch and um, the um, coming to terms of, of, uh, to some extent of the dissenters and the Anglicans in the Restoration England that the British Empire really takes off. But the beginnings are in this period. Well, let me try and sort of finish our segment up in the next 60 seconds and maybe mention Latin America a little bit. Um, in the 16th century, if there was globalization going on in Latin America, it would have been viewed in terms of conquest. In the period that we're looking at in this moments of change um, year, uh, conquest is really replaced more by an intensification of cultural interaction of the kind that my colleagues here have been talking about. Um, and more by the movements of people, by migration, um, albeit a lot of it involuntary. By the time we get to the turn of the 17th century, more than a million Africans have been uh, forced across the Atlantic against their will. What's happening in, in these early decades is that a new civilization is being forged in Latin America. And um, for most of the last 500 years, the creation of that civilization has been seen as a kind of Hispanizing process, with the Europeans coming and finding a new world, creating a new world that's more or less in the image of the old one, and really, very recently, I would say more like the last 20, maybe 30 years, that view has been radically altered by scholars from all disciplines, not just limited to the ones uh, represented here in this room. And that view is now seen, that process is now seen as one in which Native peoples and Africans contributed as much as Spaniards 
and Portuguese and other Europeans to, as I said, the forging of a, of a unique civilization uh, which had multiple local variants. Right, so as we, just as the point where we begin to understand what Latin American civilization is and what it looks like, uh, that sort of construct starts to crumble and we start to see all these local different versions and variants on it. Um, I want to end by referring you back to this image up here um, to try to sort of connect that in some way to what, to what we've just been saying. Um, when I talk about this image in the classroom and I ask students to think of it not as a um, as a single flat drawing or engraving is what it is, but rather a freeze frame from a movie, right? So this is just a moment, what's about to happen next? And often um, they say, well, you know, America's inviting Vespucci into the hammock and um, <laughs> they want to talk about that, of course. And I try and get them to think about it, um, you know, in terms of sort of the ideas of what's happening. They say, well, maybe, She's inviting him into the hammock, and then that's a symbol of the exploitation of, of America, the exploitation of America's human and natural resources by Europeans. And I say, well, what if the reverse is happening? What if America's about to get up out of the hammock, take the banner and the astrolabe from Vespucci, say thanks, and then she's going to walk off frame? <laughs> All right, thank you. Thank you very much. I wish she did. Yeah. <laughs>